the second reading. So now as we get into the message this morning, let's take a moment to have a word of prayer as we prepare to hear from God's word. Lord, we thank you for these good things that we read about, the good promises that you've given us because you are a good God. And we thank you for Jesus Christ, your son, who died in our place, was raised again, and those who put faith in him may have eternal life because of this gift. Lord, it's in his name that we pray and ask for your help this morning. Amen. All right, so this morning we're doing something a little different. We've been going through the book of Luke. But I felt it was important to take this Sunday and learn from Scripture what communion is all about. Well, many of you know quite well about the procedure of communion. I must assume there are at least some here who have never had an in-depth teaching on communion. And so my hope is that by the time we take communion together this morning, we will have a more full understanding and appreciation of what it is that we are doing when we take communion together. For those who have never had a more in-depth teaching on communion, this will help you not only to have a better understanding and appreciation of it, but also to provide you with ways to help you think and prepare for, as well as reflect afterward when we do this sacrament. For those who feel that they know all about communion, some of you have taken it hundreds of times do not allow yourself to drift into daydreams because you think this, you don't need this teaching. Especially if you are now thinking, what can I learn about communion now when I've been doing it for so long? Let me take a fair guess that some of you, like me, may at times forget to take communion seriously. Some of you, like me, may be even guilty of not preparing your heart at times and simply going through the motions And this can happen with anything that we do as a routine. And so let us take this time and ask the Lord Lord to help us to better understand his table. Let us commit in this short time to better appreciate our Lord and this wonderful gift he's given us, the gift of communion or the Lord's Supper. The two main texts that we'll be working through this morning from 1 Corinthians Uh, First two verses in chapter 10 and then some verses from chapter 11. In in chapter 10, we have verses 16 and 17 where Paul writes, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And then moving forward into chapter 11, starting at verse 17. Paul continues, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, 
and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So this morning, there's a lot of lessons we can take from this text, and we're going to try to get through some things that will hopefully help you, as I said, to have a better appreciation and understanding. The big idea is a very simple one, and that is that communion is a blessing to believers. Communion is a blessing to believers. And we're going to look at, first, some reasons or symbols of communion, the bread, the blood, the fact that it's a declaration, and the fact that it is a participation. And then we're going to look at some necessary components of communion, aside from the bread and cup, that are these, in a unified church, patience and generosity, regularity, that it's taken in a worthy manner and with self-reflection. So first, a brief understanding of what a sacrament is. So we consider communion to be a sacrament and we consider baptism to be a sacrament. What is a sacrament? Well, according to the Lexham Bible Dictionary, sacraments are ritual actions undertaken by the Christian church that are understood as visible signs of invisible divine grace. They are ritual actions undertaken by the church that are understood as visible signs of invisible divine grace. Um, We read a moment ago or recited from the Apostles' Creed and The creeds and confessions can be very helpful for us because they were put together by church fathers who got together for church councils to try to help to articulate our understanding of the faith. It's biblical, but the Bible still is primary. But these give us a way to try to help us think through things. And so during the message this morning, I'm going to read from a number of places in some different confessions so that you could have hopefully a more complete idea about communion. The first one is from the Belgic Confession. The Belgic Confession says the following, We believe that our good God, mindful of our crudeness and weakness, has ordained sacraments for, his, for us to seal his promises in us, to pledge his goodwill and grace towards us, and also to nourish and sustain our faith. He has added these to the word of the gospel to represent better to our external senses both what he enables us to understand by his word and what he does inwardly in our heart, confirming in us the salvation he imparts to us. For they are visible signs and seals of something internal and invisible by means of which God works in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So they are not empty and hollow signs to fool and deceive us, for their truth is Jesus Christ, without whom they would be nothing. Moreover, we are satisfied with the number of sacraments that Christ our Master has ordained for us. There are only two, the sacrament of baptism and the Holy Supper of Jesus Christ. So to help us then in our own weakness, God has provided us these symbols or sacraments by which we have a powerful witness and reminder of the object and the means of saving faith we hold. And when we participate in these sacraments, there is a real and effective special grace that God provides to us when we participate with honesty and humility. I want to read now from the Westminster Confession that says this, Sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace, immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefit and to confirm our interest in him, as also to put a visible difference between those that belong unto the church and the rest of the world, and solemnly, solemnly to engage them in the, to the service of God in Christ according to his word. There is, in every sacrament, a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the, thing, the, the sign and the thing signified 
whence it comes to pass that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. The grace which is exhibited in or by the sacraments rightly used is not conferred by any power in them, neither doth the effects, efficacy of a sacrament depend on the piety or intention of him that doth administer it. That's good news, by the way. That means if you have a flawed preacher, it doesn't mean the communion didn't count. So that's a good thing. But upon the work of the Spirit and the word of institution, which contains together with the precept of authorizing the use thereof, a promise of benefit to worthy receivers. This is an overview of what a sacrament is, and communion then is one of the sacraments, the other being Christian baptism. There is one difference in those two that's very clear to most people, is that baptism is something we do one time, and communion is something we continue to do throughout our Christian life. So let's take a look at the symbols and reasons for communion. For many of you, this will be a sort of a review, yet take care you don't flippantly gloss over these things. It is vital for us to take this seriously, and this means to take care to shut out of our minds other things and focus on what the meaning of communion is. So the first symbol, of course, is the bread. And the second is the cup, which is a symbol and reminder of Christ's body and his shed blood on the cross. This is my body, that is, for, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So for both, for the, both of these symbols, the bread and the cup, it is helpful for us to remember where and when Jesus commanded this ordinance. Remember that it was at the Passover meal, and any bread would have been unleavened. The Passover meal was a community meal. No one ever was to take it alone. A larger family would be their own small community that would take Passover together. Smaller families would come together and have the meal. Furthermore, it was a very significant occasion, a time to recall the Passover when the Israelites were to put blood on the doorposts so that the angel of death would spare them the plague of the killing of the firstborn. That was the plague that finally brought the hard-hearted Pharaoh to let the Israelites go, although his heart was not softened. <laughs> but this Passover meal or the cedar meal was a command for all Hebrews, for all their generations to keep. Jesus and his disciples then were at this meal together when Jesus began to teach through these simple elements of bread and wine. The bread and wine tell a parable of sorts. Jesus himself made the comparison. It is unnecessary to take the position of what is called transubstantiation, which is a fancy long word, but transubstantiation is something believed by the Roman Catholic Church and some other denominations. And transubstantiation is an understanding that the bread and wine become the actual blood and flesh of Jesus through some kind of mysterious, almost like a magic trick or something. Um, and the Westminster Confession, by the way, calls transubstantiation, transubstantiation, it's easy for me to say, um, but the Westminster Confession says that that's repugnant to Scripture as well as to common sense and reason. They say it overthrows the nature of the sacrament and it is the cause of manifold superstitions and gross idolatries. Nor does Scripture make necessary consubstantiation. Um, so transubstantiation, trans meaning it transitions into something. You hear the word trans a lot these days consubstantiation, which may be not quite as bad as transubstantiation, but instead it says the body and blood of Christ are really there and the bread and wine coexist with the, the actual body and, and uh, bread of Christ, uh, body and blood of Christ. Now, Luther took that view, but rather than taking either of those two views, we understand that the bread and wine, or the grape juice in our case, remain bread and they remain grape juice. When we take communion, we must not think of ourselves as offering up Jesus to a sacrifice or offering him in any way to the Father, which some traditions have done, and that is a false teaching. 
So we don't say to God, here's Jesus again. We're, we're sacrificing him again. Instead, it's a spiritual exercise. We spiritually feed on Christ crucified. We receive all the benefits of his death. He is spiritually present when we do this ordinance as faithful believers. At the cedar meal, the Passover meal, which was full of reminders of the slavery in Egypt and the Exodus, but most importantly, the faithfulness of God, at this meal, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper or communion. From one special occasion full of symbolism, Jesus gave us a much better one. Scripture tells us that all of these Old Testament statues and rituals and feasts were but a shadow, but the substance belongs to Christ. And that's what we have today, is the substance of Christ himself. So as many wonderful allusions were found in the cedar meal to the faithfulness of God and his enduring promise, communion is something very much better just as Jesus was better than Moses, as the book of Hebrews makes so abundantly clear. In addition to the symbolic reasons regarding the body and blood of Christ, communion is also a declaration. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So why is it important to declare his death over and over. Well, for one thing, it's a critical part of the gospel message. Also, throughout church history, many heresies have popped up that deny some critical element of the gospel, including those who said that Jesus never really died. Jesus knew this would happen, and so he helps us to increase our faith through communion. So who are we declaring that to? Well, mostly we're declaring it to ourselves and to the other believers in our local church. Of course, people may be here as guests and they may witness this and people may watch online, but this is primarily something we declare inwardly to ourselves as we reflect. And I will be talking more about that in a while, but also as those around us, including our precious children, witness us doing it, we continue to declare this important truth of the gospel that Jesus died on the cross. Communion is also an act, as already mentioned, of participation. Really, it is a participation in the community of believers, as I already mentioned. But more than that, it is a participation in the very death of Jesus. When we take communion, we are participating in what he did on the cross. So we go back to that passage from 1 Corinthians 10. This cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. In these two verses, Paul says much about participation. We participate in his death and sacrifice on the cross, but also we partake as many who are one body. Again, we see the common descriptor of the church, one body. This is the body of Christ living in our world. That is the church. So this may be an entirely new concept to you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and in all his benefits. I'm going to move for a moment now to the Heidelberg Catechism. This is a German catechism from the 1500s. They ask and answer this question. How does the Holy Supper remind you and assure you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and in all its benefits. So in case you're not familiar, some of you never grew up with any kind of catechisms. They're, they're often set up this way in a series of questions and answers. So the children and adults are taught to ask the question or hear the question be asked 
and answer the question. Kind of like Kevin earlier said, what do you believe? And we repeated back the Apostles' Creed. So this is the question. How does the Holy Supper remind and assure you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and in all his benefits? Answer in this way. Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat this broken bread and to drink this cup in remembrance of him. With this command come these promises. First, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup shared with me, so surely his body was offered and broken for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Second, as surely as I receive from the hand of him who serves and taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord, given me as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely he nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life with his crucified body and poured out blood. In other words, when you take communion, you ought to have such a faith in your redemption because of the cross as though it is absolutely and really real, just as the elements you hold in your hand that represent it are real. It should be that real to you. So communion is a participation, both participation in the community of saints and also a real participation in the death of Christ and therefore a real reminder of the promise that because Christ was raised from the dead, so will all the faithful be certainly and most assuredly raised to life with him. In fact, the Heidelberg Catechism is not yet done giving us additional blessed assurance with this next question. Why then does Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood or the new covenant in his blood? And Paul used the words, a participation in Christ's body and blood. Answer, Christ has good reason for these words. He wants to teach us that just as bread and wine nourish the temporal life, so too his crucified body and poured out blood are the true food and drink of our soul for eternal life. But more important, he wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge that we, through the Holy Spirit's work, share in his true body and blood as surely as our mouths receive these holy signs in his remembrance and that all of his suffering and obedience are as definitely ours as if we had personally suffered and made satisfaction for our sins. Brothers and sisters, this is an amazing truth. That we, when we take communion together, truly and really participate in the suffering and death of Jesus as though we were truly there with him because in a spiritual sense, we were there with him. So the reasons or symbols of communion are these. The bread as a symbol of Christ's body given for us. The cup, a symbol and reminder of Christ's blood spilled for us. Communion is also a declaration whereby we declare his death each time we take it together and finally, it is a participation, a community observance, and a real communion with Jesus as his body, and also a real participation in his suffering and obedience. Now let us consider some necessary components of communion. Some necessary components of communion, and this is by no means an all-inclusive list, are a unified church Patience and generosity, regularity, taken in a worthy manner, and with self-reflection. First off, a unified church. A unified church is one that is present together. The Reformers rejected the idea of private communion or masses. They believed that churches lived out in community. This experience is one that must be done in person, together with the church. It is impossible to say you had the Lord's Supper all by yourself at dinner last night. Unless the church is gathered, you cannot have true communion. And while it is in person with the congregation of believers, that congregation must also be united. You should never take communion 
if you are in conflict or turmoil to the point where you have not confessed your faults in the matter or been able to forgive someone in the church who has wronged you. Again, verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 10. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And then 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen. 18. In the first place, Paul writes, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. From these two verses, we see that Paul has in mind a unified church. And we can conclude this because he heard something, a bad report, about the Corinthian church. There are divisions among you. Now Paul says, I believe it in part, so it may be that he assumes that part of the report he heard might have been exaggerated, but he knows a lot about human nature, so he realizes there must be some truth in it, so he says, I believe it in part. Now in a sense, Paul realizes the divisions are always going to be present in almost every sphere of human interaction. And the church being made up of humans is not completely free of division. So he says this is one way of figuring out who is genuine. Verse 19, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Despite the fact that divisions can reveal who is who, that's not the ideal. Paul is at the same time acknowledging what is present and yet pointing out that a problem exists that needs to be worked out. And that problem is that there are factions and that they are lacking the next necessary component, which is patience and generosity. Starting at verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. This is the earliest account of an actual communion service that we have from the early church. It seems they would have a love feast in conjunction with the Lord's Supper. So probably this would not be all that different than our potluck meals that we have sometimes although they would not have had the great variety of dishes that we have here at Oasis Church. However, there might have been a much greater disparity there in in comparison to us as far as what someone could afford to bring. And by the way, speaking of meals, I was thinking about this the other day, totally off the cuff a little bit here, but um, some of you come from a ways away to come to church here at Oasis Church, And if you ever wanted to meet with some friends after church, we do at the fellowship hall. And if we don't have anything planned, you're welcome to go back there and have a meal with a family or two or three or whatever. We don't have to have an organized thing, right? Just get one of the deacons to show you how to lock the doors on the way out and shut off the lights and you'll be good. Oh, and clean up. (laughs) So so anyway, back to the, the love feast that they would have. Some people, just like today, have a lot to bring. But some people had nothing or next to nothing. Not only that, but the poor and those who were servants or slaves in the early church may have gotten there later than the others because they were still working. And when they arrived, the good food was all eaten. And if anything was left, it was not much. And this goes against the ideal for the church, which would be that there would be a great patience whereby some were not willing to wait to eat until everyone arrived. And along with this patience, a generosity that would bring those with more means to think more kindly about those less fortunate. Now, we all know something about waiting for food, right? Not easy. Sometimes we get hangry. Janelle and I and the girls were invited some years ago to a family's house where they had three or four families coming over for dinner. And one of the families that was famously late (laughs) all the time we're over an hour past the time when the meal was supposed to start. And the poor lady who had cooked all the food, it's getting dried out, it's sitting in the, in the stove. Finally, they just figured they're not coming. So we sat down and started to eat. And they came in, and they were shocked that we had started without them. They were offended. Um, that may be a little extreme. But uh, what Paul's writing about here is that there were people who truly had no food maybe and they were coming to the church love feast 
maybe for their only meal of the day. Um, that wasn't the case in my illustration. but So we don't have an exact parallel perhaps today, but what other patience may we be lacking toward others? Do we lose our patience with those who struggle more in the faith? With those who have trouble figuring out their priorities? With those who need to spend a lot of time sharing about the difficulties they're going through? With things that just don't really get us all excited. What things do we have trouble being generous with? Our time, our expertise in certain areas where we could be helpful to someone, our friendship. So a necessary component of communion is patience and generosity. And we must examine ourselves to see that when we come to our Lord's table, it would not be said of us that we don't consider others. So again, those necessary components of communion... Unified church, patience and generosity, regularity, taken in a worthy manner, and with self-reflection. So let's talk about regularity for a moment. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup. So how often is often? Well, the Bible does not say specifically how often we should do this. I knew a man that advocated at our previous church just about every elders meeting, we should do this weekly. He believed that strongly. He had come from a church that had communion at every church service, whether it was Sunday morning or any other service. They always did communion. The other, other people say, you know, once a month plus Good Friday is good enough. There will be different opinions on this. But we must get along, even if we do disagree on how often we should have communion. The timing or frequency of it is not a primary issue. But we should be sure that we do have some amount of regularity. Now, the next thing is that we need to take it in a worthy manner and the self-reflection that helps us to do so. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven gives this warning. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let, us, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. So scripture says we must examine ourselves. And I will return to the catechisms for a moment because here they give us some wonderful counsel and encouragement. Does anyone need encouragement? We do need encouragement, right? So here we go back to the Heidelberg Catechism. This is question number 81. Who should come to the Lord's table? Answer. Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves. So we must not avoid the Lord's table because we have sinned, but we must confess and turn from those sins and trust we are forgiven. As 1 John 1, 8, and 9 reminds us, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And while we do not interrogate each person taking communion, we must still warn that if someone is not a believer or if they're living in an ungodly way without repenting, then it dishonors God's covenant and can bring wrath on the entire congregation, which is what Paul is really getting at in this passage. So if the church is, uh, is aware of an unbeliever or an unrepentant sinner in the congregation, we are duty-bound to exclude them from communion for their good and ours. As we get to the end of this teaching and to prepare our hearts to receive communion, let me offer some further encouragement to you. 
I'm going to use the Westminster Catechism once again. Now, I want to be clear. The catechisms that I've referred to are just ways to summarize certain aspects of our mutual faith. The catechism itself is not the Bible, but it attempts to put certain teachings of the Bible in a more understandable form. You should always check anything you hear taught, whether from this pulpit or any other Christian church, against Scripture, which is the only source. I don't normally refer to things like the catechisms, as you know, but I find for this particular topic much beauty and much help in the language of these catechisms. They were thoughtfully composed by church councils, mostly from the Reformation, and I have been just using them to summarize our faith. Now, I want to close by speaking to the discouraged among us, as well as to all of us about how we prepare for this time of communion. And then I will close with some words about what our duties are after we take the communion. We ought to think carefully to pray both before and after this precious time, and each time we take it. From the Westminster Larger Catechism, question number 171, how are they that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to prepare themselves before they come in? They that receive the Lord's Supper are, before they come, to prepare themselves thereunto by examining themselves of their being in Christ, of their sins and wants, wants in this case means shortcomings, of the truth and measure of their knowledge, faith and repentance, love to God and the brethren, charity to all men, forgiving those that have done them wrong, of their desire after Christ and of their new obedience, and by renewing the exercise of these graces by serious meditation and fervent prayer. So all of us are responsible to do these acts of self-examination. But what are you to do if you are having some doubts? What if you're having a crisis of faith? What if you have lost some of the assurance you had once about your salvation? Here again, the Westminster Catechism helps us and should bring you great encouragement if you're discouraged in your faith this morning. Question number 172 says, May one who doubteth of his being in Christ or of his due preparation come to the Lord's Supper. Answer, one who doubteth of his being in Christ or of his due preparation to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper may have true interest in Christ though he be not yet assured thereof. And in God's account hath it, if he be duly affected with the apprehension of the want of it. In other words, he wants it badly, but is not sure if he has the assurance. And unfeignedly, that means without any hypocrisy, desires to be found in Christ and to, be, and to depart from iniquity. In which case, because promises are made and this sacrifice, sacrament appointed, for the relief even of weak and doubting Christians. Even of weak and doubting Christians. Then he is to bewail his unbelief and labor to have his doubts resolved, and in do, and so doing he may and ought to come to the Lord's Supper that he may be further strengthened. What amazing and good news this is. Your faith need not be perfect to come to the Lord's table. Otherwise, no one would come. Yet, if you desire to be found in Christ and to leave your sins behind, then you must simply confess your shortcoming. You can say like the man, I believe, help my unbelief, and take this trusting in the wonderful grace of Jesus Christ and his presence here among us. So by doing that, your faith may be strengthened. And as we now prepare to take our communion, let us consider what the larger catechism says is required of all that receive this. It is required of them that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that during the time of the administration of it, with all holy reverence and attention, they wait upon God in that ordinance, diligently observe the sacramental elements and actions, Heedfully discern the Lord's body and affectionately meditate on his death and sufferings and thereby stir up themselves to a vigorous exercise of their graces. 
in judging themselves and sorrowing for sin, in earnest hungering and thirsting after Christ, feeding on him by faith, receiving of his fullness, trusting in his merits, rejoicing in his love, giving thanks for his grace, in renewing of their covenant with God and love to all the saints. In other words, friends, we have a responsibility when we come to the Lord's table to prepare ourselves. So at this time, Kevin is going to lead us in some, a song, a few verses. And the deacons, if you could come forward and start dis- distributing the communion elements, I would appreciate that. Thank you.
and when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. That last line is a reminder that even in Jesus' presence there was a traitor. And yet he allowed them to partake with it talked a moment ago about those who are doubtful in their faith. You're encouraged to come to the Lord's table to have your faith increased. So if you're that person, if you're a person who's in the moment realizing some sins that you need to confess and silently before the Lord, confess them and take with us to have your faith increased. Remember earlier I read that as real as this is in our hand, that's how real the cross should be to us. The death on the cross and the resurrection. This should be a proof to us of the reality. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this bread and this cup. I pray, Lord, that as we have learned this morning more about it and what it represents, that each of us with sober hearts have examined ourselves, that we may be forgiven by you, Lord. I pray that we would truly believe John 1 9, 1 John 1 9, which says that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us. Lord, if anyone here is in doubt about the forgiveness of sins, I pray, Lord, that you'll help them to believe this verse. And Lord, if there's any that are discouraged or doubtful in their faith, I pray that they would sense your presence even now as you've promised you'll be with us as this sober yet joyous reminder. And in Jesus' name, we take it. Amen. have taken it together, I want to turn one last time to the larger catechism, because you may not realize this, that you have a duty after you've received the Lord's Supper as well. The question then in the catechism says, what is the duty of Christians after they have received the Lord's Supper? Answer, the duty of Christians after they have received the Lord's Supper is seriously to consider how they have behaved themselves therein and with what success. <clears throat> if they find quickening and comfort, to bless God for it. Beg the continuance of it. Watch against relapses. Fulfill their vows and encourage themselves to a frequent attendance on that ordinance. But if they find no present benefit, more exactly to review their preparation for to and carriage to the sacrament in both which if they can approve themselves to God in their own consciences, they are to wait for the fruit of it in due time. In other words, if you didn't sense something now, but you were sincere, wait for the fruit. If they, if they see that they have failed in either, they are to be humbled and to attend upon it afterwards with more care and diligence. In other words... If you just are realizing, I just took this and didn't take it very seriously, then you are to diligently seek to do it better the next time. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for this great blessing of the Lord's Supper. 
I thank you, Lord, that you've given us a real and practical way that we can be reminded of the death on the cross. And Lord, that we're in this way participating in it because spiritually we did participate. Because while you were on that cross, each of those who would believe in you all the way up until the present time and into the future until you come again, every one of us participated with you. Therefore, Lord, we can have confidence that you have saved us, that your resurrection promises us eternal life. May each person leave this room this morning, Lord, with a renewed appreciation of the Lord's Supper. And may we each leave as well, Lord, with increased confidence and assurance in our salvation. For your glory and for your son's sake, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand one more, one more verse Kevin's going to lead us in. supper the Passover meal it says they sang a hymn and went out so as you go out let's return to Psalm 121 as I told you at the beginning Psalm 121 said at the end there it says